I'm Ben Coley. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for the past two and a half years. My second overseas posting was to the Falkland Islands, but I'll be dead honest, before I went, I hardly knew anything about the military conflict that happened there 40 years ago. In this series, I want to learn even more by hearing from those who were there. The MOD had done a study in November 1981 where they concluded that retaking the Falkland Islands would be impossible. He said, don't worry about it, they won't come. We've got the Marines here, you know, it's British. He couldn't believe it when Terence woke him up in the morning and said they're here. The first thing he'd done was run downstairs and had a whiskey. We were all in Shackleton House that evening and we were listening to Fulton Niles radio and it came as a bolt out of the blue. If you take the gun out of my back, I'm going to transmit that to you. If you take the gun away. The government has now decided that a large task force will sail as soon as all preparations are complete. Join me on a journey from invasion to liberation and beyond. This is Falklands 82, Stories from the South Atlantic. Let's start with the basics. The Falkland Islands are 8,000 miles away from the UK in the South Atlantic. They're a British overseas territory and have been under British rule since 1833. But sovereignty has long been disputed by the Falklands' nearest neighbour, Argentina. A further 300 miles away, Argentina has its own name for the islands, Islas Malvinas. And in 1982, the dispute over the islands escalated into military conflict. 40 years later, and there's still a strong British military presence on the islands. More than 1,000 servicemen and women from the Royal Navy, British Army, and the Royal Air Force are based there to demonstrate the UK's continued commitment to security in the region. Flying Officer Jay Gorung and Flight Lieutenant Ben Gibson are both serving there now. And like me, they didn't know much before they arrived. I must confess, not an awful lot. Yeah, I don't think I did much of studying about it. I I had a vague idea of what had happened and what kicked everything off. And sort of getting closer to the time when I was coming out, I was sort of doing some reading just so I can have some sort of idea. Before I came down, not a huge amount. My dad did sort of explain as to uh, there's a war in 82 and the the things that came out of it. I learned a lot when I was here last time. Uh, We did pretty much all of the battlefield tours that we could. So what was life like in the Falklands before Britain beefed up the defence? We had a very strange life, a lovely life, a very sheltered life on West Falklands, living on a farm. We never had to think about our future because farm owners or managers pretty much were nominated to run the country. We never questioned what they did. In fact, we knew very wasn't an open government like we have now, but it was a very, very simple life. Oh, it was more people living in camp. What you didn't do today, then next day. Very easy, very quiet life, really. Just, just went from day to day. Pretty quiet and laid back. People came to Stanley to do a bit of shopping or to visit people or went to other farms. Yeah, and I think pretty much everywhere was the same. It was just a small community scattered across the whole island, basically. And then it all changed in, in 82. Britain claimed sovereignty over the Falklands on the principle of self-determination, a fancy term that basically means that the people of the Falklands are British and have chosen to be so. 
1982, Argentina's ruling military junta were facing an economic crisis that was plagued by civil unrest. In a bid to boost popularity at home, General Leopoldo Galtieri decided to invade the Falklands. So how did it all begin? Well, I was surprised to discover that the Falklands conflict didn't even start in the Falklands. It actually began nearly a thousand miles away on the island of South Georgia on the 19th of March. In 1982, Keith Mills was one of a small number of Royal Marines already stationed in the Falklands. The 22-year-old lieutenant was commanding a detachment of Marines on the Antarctic patrol vessel HMS Endurance. We were on the Falkland Islands at the time, having just completed our third work period, and we were literally about to set sail to come home. And uh, we were actually round, or I personally was round at the governor's house that evening with some of the ship's officers when word came in that uh, from the British Antarctic scientists on South Georgia, that an Argentine presence had landed on South Georgia and had been uncooperative in, in getting their passport stamped. They'd also raised a flag and even fired a volley of shots. Seems clear to me that these scrap metal workers weren't really interested in dismantling an old whaling station. So it was at that stage that the governor and the captain of the ship, I assume in conjunction with the United Kingdom government, formed a plan that the endurance would go back to South Georgia with a view of either encouraging these Argentinians to have their passport stamped or evict them. And before we left, it was decided that because my detachment was so small, only 12 Marines plus myself, that we'd be complemented with another nine from Naval Party 8901, which was the Fulton Islands detachment. And so I had a, a section uh, under Lance Corporal Thompson, Geordie Thompson, who joined us. So they, they became part of the HMS and George detachment. Over the next two weeks, concerns grew that Argentina was about to invade the Falklands. At 3.30 in the afternoon on the 1st of April, the Falkland Islands Governor, Rex Hunt, received a telegram from the Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington. It said, We now have apparently reliable evidence that an Argentine task force will gather off Cape Pembroke early tomorrow morning. You and Buenos Aires will wish to make your dispositions accordingly. But what does this telegram actually mean? I'll be honest, I don't have a clue. What was the governor supposed to do? Take immediate action? Sit tight? Or come to some sort of diplomacy? It's not exactly been made very clear. Meanwhile, over in South Georgia, Lieutenant Mills and his Marines had made it ashore and set up their base with the British Antarctic Survey scientists who lived there. We were all in Shackleton House that evening and we were listening to Fulton Lands Radio, Patrick Watson Fulton Lands Radio, and I can't remember exactly what time of the evening it was, but it, it came as a bolt out of the blue when he suddenly said, the governor is going to be coming along and make an announcement shortly. It's important that everyone keeps their radios on because there is the possibility that the, the Fulton Lands might actually be invaded tomorrow morning. Uh, so this was on the evening of the 1st of April. I have an important announcement to make about the state of affairs between the British and Argentine governments over the Falkland Islands dispute. If the Security Council's urging to keep the peace is not heeded by the Argentine government, I expect to have to declare a state of emergency perhaps before dawn tomorrow. 
I remember the scientists being like outraged. What, you didn't tell us anything about this? And I sort of said, well, to be honest, I didn't know anything about this. This is as new to you as it is to me that it's actually happening. And it was like watching a movie. And I remember sort of Pete Leach, my sergeant major, and I had a quick chat about this. We thought, well, there's nothing most of the men can do at this moment in time. So they all went off to bed. And Pete Leach and I and Steve Martin, the bass commander, stayed listening to this radio. And of course, Rex Hunt came on later that evening and declared a state of emergency. Well, I'd never, I'd only ever seen that on films before. And there were regular bulletin updates when the Fulton Lions Defence Force were asked to turn up at Government House or will report to the town hall, or I'm not sure exactly where they would report to. But again, you're still thinking, surely not, surely this isn't going to happen. And then about sort of four or five o'clock in the morning, Pat Watts came on and said, Patrick Watts, the Argentine fleet has now been sighted off Cape Pembroke and there are landing craft approaching the Narrows. And then you could sort of hear some firing in the background. And then the next thing I know, everything goes off air. And uh, I looked at Pete Leach and he looked at me and we said, holy shit. Clearly, things were heating up now. The wheels were set in motion and an invasion was imminent. So what was the worst thing that could happen right at this moment? I'd say it's losing communications with the UK. My name's Brian Summers. At the time, I was the supervisor at Cable and Wireless who was running the station. And I was one of the few Morse code trained people there. On the 1st of April, it was decided when things were starting to get a bit uh, tense, put it that way, that we should go to 24-hour operation. And I drew the short straw in a way, I suppose, and I was going to do the first overnight shift. But being HF radio, it's a bit fickle. And if you haven't got the right frequency plan, which we didn't have, in the middle of the night, we lost comms with uh, the UK. I then tried calling them up on Morse code because we had an emergency system in place that you could get hold of the UK by going through Portishead Radio, which was the maritime radio station just outside of Bristol. And we used to test this system every three months. And at seven o'clock on the morning of the first, I got through to them. But 20 hours later, there was nothing I could do. I could hear them and I chased them up and down the van, but uh, they weren't actually hearing me. So we lost communications really at the critical time just as the Argentine forces were landing, we couldn't speak to the outside world. Early on the 2nd of April, Argentine forces mounted amphibious landings on the Falkland Islands. It was an invasion many Falkland Islanders thought they'd never, ever see. No, I don't think we did. I mean, every year when it used to come up in the United Nations, we used to say, oh, the usual old thing, and then it would be forgotten until the next year. I think when they went into South Georgia, a lot of us probably said, we'll probably be next if we're not careful or, so, or they're not careful or something like that. But I think probably quite a lot thought, no, that's as far as they'll go. I think once we got the announcement from Sir Rex, yes, we did, we knew what was happening. But prior to that, we'd been monitoring what was going on at South Georgia. So we were aware that it was a possibility, but we'd spoken for years about when they invade. I don't think we ever really thought they would. We knew something was happening, we didn't know what. And when the invasion took place and it all went through its phrases at night time and next day came, they say it was a waiting game for us. We didn't know, we thought, oh yes, they'll be here, do their normal speech and then they'll be away after a week or two. 
because we had a good link with South America at that time, we didn't think it was going to escalate into something that big. Oh, I don't know. 50-50 until the night before, maybe. We knew something was going to happen, but we didn't know when. But the night before, of course, we did know. The Argentine problem was always there, but we never had to deal with it, you know, as, as people living on the farm. So we didn't think too much about it. But then, obviously, the day before they invaded, it was pretty obvious they were going to invade. There was always the threat that they were going to. There was the odd aeroplane came in and stuff like that. But again, you know, it was just hard to explain how sheltered a life we had, but you know, other people dealt with that sort of thing, so we didn't have to think too much about it. That evening we had a Navy bloke off the Endurance staying with us, and the governor came home, we were having our evening meal. He said, don't worry about it, they won't come. And we said, why? And he said, well, it's more than they dare do. We've got the Marines here, you know, it's British. He couldn't believe it when Terence woke him up in the morning and said they're here. The first thing he'd done was run downstairs and had a whiskey. <laughs> the invasion was met by a fierce but brief defence by the 69 members of Naval Party 8901, a small detachment of Royal Marines along with 23 members of the Falkland Islands Defence Force. Vastly outnumbered, Rex Hunt ordered the commandos to do something that's not in their nature. Surrender. The local population were kept informed of what was going on by listening to the radio. Until Argentinian troops stormed the studio. They told the people to wait, uh, turning on their receivers, uh, to wait some minutes. Uh, in some minutes, the chief is going to communicate them what we are going to, what we want uh, for the for no. the population. Well, uh, just a minute. If you take the gun out of my back, I'm going to transmit it to you. If you take the gun away. But I'm not speaking with the gun in my back. As a radio presenter myself, I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been. The voice we heard there was Patrick Watts, who was on air at the Falkland Islands Broadcasting Station. I could hear them before I could see them. They, they were noisy. They were very exuberant, excited. Uh, they really felt that they had achieved something. I felt well, I got nothing to lose here. And I was very angry and upset about the fact that my islands had been invaded and the prospects didn't look good for the future. But anyway, they came in. So I just said to them, hey, Look, you're in a radio station. First thing, no smoking in my radio station. Nobody smokes in here. I don't smoke. None of my staff smoke. If you're going to smoke, outside. And to much my, to my surprise, the officer in charge told them to stop smoking. And I said, quieten down. You're in a radio station now. You're not in a playground. You know, you, you've got to be quiet in here. And, and I said, I will not be broadcasting with your guns here. You've got to take those guns out of the studio here and put them outside. Ladies and gentlemen, the population of the Falkland Islands and whoever else may be listening, the radio station is now under control, as you know, of the invasion forces of Argentina and therefore we have to obey the instructions of these forces. At this moment I've been instructed to play for you a tape. Uh, I don't know what it is, so I'm going to play it and for you now. A partir del día de la fecha... 2 de abril de 1982 inicia su transmisión 
LRA Radio Islas Malvinas, para toda la República Argentina. Begins its transmission, LRA, Islas Malvinas Broadcasting Station, for the whole of the Argentine Republic. We shall listen now the Argentine National Anthem. I cringe every time I hear that still. If there's an international football match at the World Cup and Argentina's playing, uh, so at the moment they, they say the Argentine National Anthem, poop, I turn down the volume until I know it's all over, because uh, that's something I just can't abide uh, with due respect to the Argentines, but um, it, it brings back too many unpleasant memories, that does, yeah. <laughs> Argentina has invaded the Falkland Islands and its marines have taken control of the colony which has been in British hands for almost 150 years. Argentina hasn't experienced this kind of national jubilation since she won the World Cup. For President Leopoldo Galtieri, it's a remarkable turnabout. Three days ago, police fired on anti-government demonstrators. Today, he can do no wrong. Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister at the time and under her leadership, the British government swung into action. The government has now decided that a large task force will sail as soon as all preparations are complete. Members of the British forces suddenly found that their immediate plans had changed. Ray Raisin was a teenage paratrooper at the time of the invasion. I was with uh, 2 Platoon, A Company, 3 Para, and I'd only been in battalion for seven months. I joined in September 1981. Then the news came out that the Argentinians had um, invaded the Falkland Islands. Uh, it was all over the news, and uh, we were then warned off that uh, we might deploy. And a week later, we found ourselves in Southampton, boarding the Canberra, which had been seconded by the British Army and had been refitted as a troop ship. Robert Lawrence was a lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards. Well, we'd seen the scrap metal merchants land on South Georgia, and we'd seen the event when they then put up the Argentinian flag and some Argentinian military suddenly appeared on South Georgia. So we knew that there was something happening. Of course, none of us really even knew where the Falklands were at that stage. I mean, as a Scots regiment, people were asking whether it was off the coast of Scotland. But you very quickly learnt, and he very quickly saw, thanks to the quick reactions of a very good war prime minister in Margaret Thatcher, before she went completely barking mad, she reacted well and quickly. And so we saw the event start, and I was pretty sure that we were going to be left behind doing public duties, which was a great frustration to young officers and young soldiers who wanted to put their green work into action. Neil Wilkinson was serving with the Welsh Guards. I was in the house with my wife and uh, saw it on the news. But again, it, it didn't click that, you know, it was going to be a, a full-on bun fight. It wasn't until the paras got called back because they were based in Aldershot, which is, was just down the road from, from us, that it started to feel a bit more real. Even though, I, again, I didn't personally think we would go, I thought it would be just a, a, like a skirmish, you know. Chris Howe, an electronic warfare specialist from the Royal Navy, was in Gibraltar when he and loads of others found out that their Easter leave wasn't quite what they'd planned for. I remember vividly the 2nd of April I woke up 
to the sound of call the hands, call the hands, call the hands, pick up a penguin. Pick up a penguin, well, that's not part of the normal way we get woken up in any uh, Puss's warship. I immediately got up, got showered, got dressed, went down to the main communications office, being one of the senior rates that could go into the main communications office and looked at the officer's reading log and learned very quickly that there was flash messages firing around that the Falkland Islands had been invaded unlawfully by an Argentinian land force and indeed aircraft. That's the way we found out on that morning that our leave in Gibraltar was curtailed and many of us were thinking, what about Easter leave? We're all supposed to be going home for Easter leave. Some were ready to go and get married. Others had different, they were leaving the Navy, time done, all sorts of things going on. But no, we were going south. That's how I found out on the 2nd of April. But news of the invasion wasn't a surprise to everybody. My name is Julian Thompson, and in 1982, I commanded the 3rd Commando Brigade, Royal Marines, as a brigadier, and we carried out the initial landings and fought most of the land battles. In that late March period, there were buzzes going around, there were problems in the Falklands, and for example, I was then the brigade commander with three commandos under command, 40, 4-2 and 4-5. One of them was doing training uh, on the ranges at Altcar and was told, stand by to go to the Falkland Islands. This was in mid-March. And then somebody said, how? Because, of course, there was no way of getting there except by flying via Argentina. So that put a kibosh on that. And there were some sort of facetious remarks that they might go pretending to be musicians with blowpipes in double bass cases and things like that. So there's a lot of facetiousness around it. But what we didn't know was actually there was some quite serious planning going on. And then a week before the Falklands blew up, I was in Denmark with most of my staff planning a NATO exercise, which we were going to carry out later in the year. And I was rung up by a member of my staff saying, you may have heard there's a a problem down south. And I said, yes, I have on the radio. So don't worry, it's not going to involve us. So I then got home on Wednesday. These days are quite crucial to be told the same again, actually, Wednesday. On Friday morning, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was rung up by my general, uh, Jeremy Moore, saying, you know those people down south are about to be invaded. Bring your brigade to short notice and sail on Tuesday. The first thought that went through my head was, God, most of my staff are in Denmark. I'm going to have to do all the work. So we then hustled around and got cracking and eventually got the ships loaded and sailed on Tuesday, as ordered. And it seems intelligence on Argentina's forces was scarce. We knew very little about them because they weren't the enemy. I mean, the enemy were the Russians, weren't they? And all, all the information, all the research had gone into that. I mean, on the day this blew up, I said to my intelligence officer, get some intelligence, and he went off to the public library in Plymouth and brought back um, all the Jane, you know, Jane's fighting ships and all the world's aircraft. It was the only information we had. And it reminded me rather uncomfortably of Hamilton's staff before Gallipoli going to buy maps in Cairo. I mean, it was that sort of thing. Roger Lane Knott was commander of the nuclear submarine HMS Splendid. Intelligence at that stage was pretty thin. We only had Jane's Fighting Ship, that's the book, which told us about the Argentinian Navy. And you've got to bear in mind that my generation at that stage, indeed the submarine service, had been totally and utterly obsessed with the Soviets. Mrs Thatcher has long been remembered for her tough military response to the Falklands invasion. But according to Julian Thompson, she needed some persuasion from the first Sea Lord. When Henry Leach walked in on her in uh, the House of Commons, 
on the Wednesday before it all blew, when it looked as if they were going to invade, he found her being briefed by John Knott and the Foreign Office. There's nothing we can do about it, Prime Minister. And he said, oh, yes, there is. And she said, what? She said, the task force could take it back. Why should we, she said. Because we'll never be the same country again, he said. And no one will ever trust us again. Next time on Falklands 82, Stories from the South Atlantic. We got off the shelf an existing contingency plan, in this case going to Norway and NATO, stretched it and looked at it to see where it fitted. I could see the whole horror of what was happening on Sheffield in front of my eyes. To, to me, it was like... 9-11 for people that watched 9-11 unfold. Early on, you know, we were referring to the Argentinians as Argentinians. And then later on, they sort of depersonalise it and they're just called the enemy. This is an original BFBS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS The Forces Station and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden, and our editor is Josella Waldron. For the full story on what happened when a detachment of Royal Marines arrived in South Georgia, check out another BFBS podcast, Tea and Medals, Keith Mills DSC, South Georgia Invasion. 